Well, good morning, everyone. I think that's a great um, message just from the worship song to go into our time in the scriptures, which I believe carries this this same message to us. So we are today going to finish a series that we started in the summer and then we had to take a short break from. When we were talking about 1 Corinthians, the stuff I was too scared to preach before. So when I first came here as a pastor in 2007, we preached through 1 Corinthians. So I wanted to come back to it this year. But when I was looking to see where we left off, I found that I had left all kinds of holes, verses that I had skipped because that was the, my, this was my first job out of school. And I thought, ooh, some of these are really hard and some of these are super controversial. And I don't know if this is the best way to start. So I skipped a bunch of stuff. But we've been coming back to it this year. We've been filling in the holes. We've been finding it is the word of God. And there have been some amazing uh, things there for us to rediscover together. So today we're going to fill in the last of those holes. And then I, 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 I won't ever skip verses again. So, um, so let me uh, just start and with the section. I'll just read the whole section. First Corinthians chapter seven, beginning in verse seventeen. See if you can guess why. Why I skipped this years ago. Each of you should continue to live in whatever situation the Lord has placed you, and remain as you were when God first called you. This is my rule for all the churches. For instance, a man who was circumcised before he became a believer should not try to reverse it. Ooh. And a man who was uncircumcised when he became a believer should not be circumcised now. For it makes no difference whether or not a man has been circumcised. The important thing is to keep God's commandments. Yes, each of you should remain as you were when God called you. Are you a slave? Don't let that worry you. But if you get a chance to be free, take it. And remember, if you were a slave when the Lord called you, you are now free in the Lord. And if you were free when the Lord called you, You are now a slave of Christ. God paid a high price for you, so don't be enslaved by the world. Each of you, dear brothers and sisters, should remain as you were when God first called you. So I skipped these back in the day. For one, it has all this weird stuff about circumcision that's really hard to understand what's going on. I mean, well, why they're writing about it. Um, And then, you know, it's got the whole slavery piece and kind of like, oh, don't worry about that. That's just great. And so with America's history of slavery, see, it was just hard. Full of things that we have trouble relating to now. And I, I was like, man, I'm not sure I want to preach it this time. But then I realized that's the message, that it's full of things that are hard to relate to now. So I'm going to come around to what I mean by that here in just a moment. But first, why don't we do the Bible study that we should have done years ago and just try to understand, like, what do the words mean and why are they there? So first thing I want to say about uh, this section, 17 to 24, is that this comes in the middle of a question that Paul is answering about some other stuff, which we have been talking about. They had written to ask him, Paul, we have single people in the church. Should they be married if they want to be real followers of Christ? And the married people had asked, or Paul, do you want us to get divorced so that we can all be single and serve the Lord only like you do? And so Paul was actually answering that question about singleness and marriage in the church. And these verses kind of come in the middle. And so that's why they start out with this, each of you should continue to live in whatever situation the Lord has placed you and remain as you were when God first called you. This is my rule for all the churches. So he's talking about marriage and singleness. Just stay how you are. 
But then he says that he makes that his rule for all the churches. And he's going to give two other examples other than marriage where he has this rule. So here comes example one. For instance, a man who was circumcised before he became a believer should not try to reverse it. And the man who was uncircumcised when he became a believer should not be circumcised now. For it makes no difference whether or not a man has been circumcised. The important thing is to keep God's commandments. Yes, each of you should remain as you were when God first called you. What he's talking about here is religious distinctions. So back then and today, Jewish males are circumcised. It's a part of putting a symbol on the body to say, that uh, this person and all of their descendants are part of the chosen people of God. And so that's the way it has been since Old Testament times. Well, so in Paul's church, when non-Jews are becoming Christians, people are asking, well, should they, to show they're part of the people of God, be circumcised? And so people are saying, I think they should. I think they should do all the Jewish stuff if they're going to be coming in and following the Jewish Messiah. But Paul always taught against that idea. Now, the weird verse in here is when he says, if you were circumcised, you should not reverse it or become uncircumcised. So what's up with that? Okay. It was very rare. It was very rare. But the Romans did have a surgery that can make it look like you had not been circumcised. Okay, who would do that and why? Uh, Jewish businessmen would do that because uh, at times in the Roman Empire, Jews were persecuted or not thought well of. And so uh, in the business community, a lot of Roman business was conducted at the gym. You would just network and talk there. Well, in a Greco-Roman gym, everybody worked out naked the whole time. You thought people ought to put on more clothes at your gym. So everybody worked out naked. So if a Jewish businessman wanted to hide his race, there was a surgery they could do to um, make that less obvious. Now, I don't really think that very many Christians in Paul's church were actually doing that, but he's just making a point that you don't have to have that operation in order to be a Christian. So all the adult men in his sanctuary say, good, um, And if you had that operation as a child, you don't have to reverse it or do anything like that. It doesn't matter. That's what Paul's saying. The religion you were born into, if it was a Jewish household or not, that doesn't matter. What matters is that you're following God. So remain as you are when God called you. That's his first, that's that's now his second example of his rule. Married and single, circumcised, uncircumcised. Then he's going to give this third example. Are you a slave? Don't let that worry you. But if you get a chance to be free, Take it. And remember, if you were a slave when the Lord called you, you are now free in the Lord. And if you were free when the Lord called you, you are now a slave of Christ. God paid a high price for you, so don't be enslaved by the world. Each of you, dear brothers and sisters, should remain as you were when God first called you. So a little historical background on this. Um, Archaeology calculates that in Corinth, about one-third of the population were slaves. One-third of the Corinthian population lived in slavery. Now, as um, Americans, we hear slavery, we tend to think of 19th century um, enslavement of African people. Uh, I want to say that historically, Roman slavery is not very much like that at all. Um, There there are some key differences from the 19th century American South. Uh, First of all, it wasn't racially based. Equal opportunity enslavers, the Romans were. Um, 
also, Roman slaves sometimes had more financial security than free poor people. Slaves in the Roman Empire could own their own businesses. Not true here. Slaves in the Roman Empire could make their own money and have their own income. Slaves in the Roman Empire could own their own property. They could even own other slaves and did. It would be possible for you to say, oh, that's my slave's slave. So I've looked for a long time for an article that would summarize what that was all like. And I finally found one very readable in just a few pages. So as you came in on the table, it was there. And if you're interested in this sort of historical background, you can, you can uh, pick that up. So I just want us to have an accurate picture of when we read about slavery in the New Testament, what's going on there. But what I don't want to say is it was great. Roman slavery was not great. They were still property. They still had no rights. They were still the bottom of the social ladder. And yet Paul tells them, don't be down about that. Christ has still called you. You really are his. You belong to Christ just the same as your master belongs to Christ, if your master is a Christian. Now what we want to know is, how can Paul, a church leader, not command all of his Christian followers, release all your slaves immediately? How can he not tell the slaves to rise up and revolt or run away, or something like that. How could Paul do that as a church leader? I believe can try to give some understanding. You may not um, f- find this uh, satisfactory, but I, I believe this is the best explanation. There were tens of thousands of slaves in Corinth, given its size. Tens of thousands of slaves in Corinth. Paul's church that he's writing to may only have a few dozen people in it. When we think of Paul as a church leader, don't think of him as the Pope leading this massive, powerful institution. This is at the beginning of Christianity. This may be just a few handfuls of people in a living room in a city with thousands, tens of thousands of slaves. Paul has this rule to remain as you were when the Lord calls you. But yet, for for slavery, he starts making some exceptions to the rule. He says, if someone offers you a chance not to be a slave, take it. In the first century, we know uh, that Romans, in their wills, were setting slaves free in record numbers. Um, They were also letting slaves buy back their slavery. They could just pay back their own price and be free again. And Paul leaves the door open. If one of those options comes to you, use it. Then Paul tells them, that you were bought with a high price by Christ, so don't sell yourself into slavery. Lots of people did that back then. That was a way to pay off debts. If you owed someone money, you could just sell yourself into slavery to that house. Paul says, don't ever do that. Remain as you were. If you're free, stay free. Paul is as anti-slavery as he can be for someone who is part of a vulnerable minority himself. Christians were a very small and vulnerable minority. If word got out that this little living room full of people had come to town to say, let all the slaves free, let there be a revolt and running away, they could have been dispatched in one afternoon by just a handful of soldiers. So the church is small and fragile itself and cannot take on the institution of slavery. Yet, but they will. 
The point of this passage, and that's another thing to remember, he's really not talking about slavery. He's just giving the examples of this rule. The point of the passage is that social standing doesn't matter to God and your religious background that you were born into doesn't matter to God. Only this matters, that God loves us and that we are devoted to him. Now we all hear that and we say, well, no, duh. I mean, everybody knows that, that social standing doesn't matter to God and your religious, what religion you're born into doesn't matter to God. But everyone, right now, there are millions of tears of joy cried in heaven because we're able to stand here and say, social standing doesn't matter to God and religious background doesn't matter to God. Only his love for us and our devotion to him. And everyone goes, well, yeah, everybody knows that. And millions weep for joy in heaven because It wasn't that way for these first Christians born into slavery. And it wasn't that way for these first converts to Christianity who were fighting for a place in the church that up to this point had been a Jews only club. It wasn't even that way for a thousand years for the medieval serfs who built all those great cathedrals in Europe. It wasn't that way for the Puritans who fled to this country from fleeing religious persecution. It wasn't that way for Native American and African converts to Christianity who used to be told, if you really want to be Christian, you have to give up your ancestral names, you have to give up your ancestral dances and holidays, you have to wear Western clothes like us if you want to follow Jesus. It wasn't even that way for non-whites living in this county within some of your lifetimes. But now it is. This morning, we read these words from Scripture that circumcision is nothing and slavery is nothing. And the important thing is to keep God's commandments and that you have all been called and given an invitation by God. And we shrug our shoulders and say, well, of course, that's true. Do you have a word for us this morning? The word is hallelujah. That this victory belongs to God. We now live in a society where you can be born anything and become anything. A society that was created by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And thousands of people are living out that story right now today. Some of you are that story. You were born in one station, place in life, and you have become something way, way different. We live in a society that has not practiced open slavery for 154 years. Yet we live in a world where slavery is still practiced openly in some nations. Typically nations where the followers of Jesus have not ever been in the majority. Paul's little letters to little churches cultivated a soil where if you tried to plant slavery in it, Verses like this would cause it to wilt and die every time. And that is what has happened as the church has spread over the world. Don't take that for granted. Give praise to the Lord. Praise to him that his victory is so complete that the verses calling for this kind of world barely make sense to us now. Now that we value what has been won for us, We must protect it. What is it that allows people in our society to be born anything and become anything? Now, you could all make a list, and I encourage you to do that. I'm just giving a few examples that I thought of. 
I think free education for everyone must be one of those things. Our great-grandfathers in the church in this country fought hard for free public education for everyone because, of course, they wanted everyone to be able to read the Bible. We need to realize and remember what a blessing that is. Other countries wish they had what we have. They try to send their kids here to get it. We need to protect that. Another thing that lets people be born anything and become anything in our society, I believe, is religious freedom. Especially for minority religions. You know, where there's a lot more of us than there are of them. Now, I'll put all my cards on the table. I don't want anyone to remain Buddhist or remain Islamic because in my point of view, the picture that Jesus presents of who God is is better, more freeing, more life-giving. But for other folks who don't yet believe that, I want them to be safe while they live among us. I want them to have the same opportunities that I have so that the love of God can be demonstrated to them every day. So we have to protect that religious freedom and someday we may need that protection ourselves. Fair wages for fair work. Uh, The end of child labor. Equality between the sexes. These are all things that sprang up in the pulpits of America in the 1800s and that Christian men and women fought for and marched for. Even the little things. Like getting rid of the distinctions between social classes. Do you know that in colonial America, in some colonies, it was illegal to dress above your station? So if you're caught wearing clothes your town felt like was above your social class. That was a punishable offense. Now here in Lakeland, we have a casual dress environment. The way I'm dressed right now would not be acceptable in many churches, but 50 years ago, it really wouldn't be acceptable for me to go outside dressed like this. So we made a casual dress environment here at Lakeland just because we just want to make church easy to come to that it wouldn't be a headache that you have to put on a special outfit in order to come to church. But do we also realize that it lets us sit in this sanctuary, the rich and the poor together on equal footing? That guy sitting down the row from you in shorts and a Harry Potter t-shirt, is that guy, does he work part-time at the grocery store or is he a doctor? Don't know. I saw him mopping the floor when I came in this morning here at the church, that doesn't settle it either, does it? Whatever he is, however much money he makes, however much prestige he has, he's a servant of Christ in this place, as are you and me and all of us. We need to protect that. No dress codes and distinctions between people of different social standings. So be alert, make your own list. What are the things we have? Because these words taught us that circumcision is nothing. Marriage and singleness are nothing. Slavery and freedom are nothing. The only thing that matters is God's love for us and our obedience to him. Name them and protect them. Now, we're not nearly done. America is not a utopia. It's still far easier for some folks to be born anywhere and become anything than others. 
So let's talk about white privilege. Oh, I know. So I know that this term white privilege gets used by a lot of different people and it has many, many different definitions. So, and I don't want to be tied to a lot of those definitions. Some of the folks, the way they talk about white privilege, it sounds like as soon as a white kid graduates from high school, he gets a free college diploma, a job, and a trust fund. Um, That was not my experience. So um, I'm not that one. Um, When I talk about white privilege, I like to talk about the scientifically verifiable one. This is an experiment that has been done many times, and you could do it as well. If you take my resume and you send it around, I'll get a certain number of callbacks to come have an interview. If you take my resume and photocopy it and change only the name, and you change the name to something like Kishan Washington or Jamal Brown, something that sounds African-American, and send that around, it will get far fewer calls for an interview. It's been done many times. It's always the same result. You could do it yourself. That's a white privilege. That doesn't mean that I didn't work for what's on my resume, but it means if my brother Kishan does the exact same work, he does not get the same return. That means that we have some work to do. We still have some work to do in Jesus' name to make that not how it is. That's what I'm talking about. We will get there not by spreading anger and not by spreading angst. We'll get there by saying what these words say. Let me just take this Bible verse and add a couple of words and see if it doesn't come rocketing into the present. Are you underprivileged? Don't let that worry you. But if you get a chance to be free, take it. And remember, if you were underprivileged when the Lord called you, you are now privileged in the Lord. And if you were privileged when the Lord called you, You are now a slave of Christ. This is the Christian way. For the underprivileged, the Christian way gives empowerment from an identity that says you are chosen by Christ, the victorious king. And how do you treat someone who has been chosen by Christ and called by him? Treat them very well. For the privileged, like me, it gives humility from our identity as servants of a king who washed feet at the Last Supper. He says, I need to be out there washing feet and serving until my brother of color, who does the same work I do, can get the same return. Then we're there. The recipe that, this is the recipe that creates Christian and free societies. Violence will not get us there. Hate will not get us there. Division, victimhood, angst. These things only ever create war and genocide. Just look at your history books. Every time someone tried to create equality through victimhood, hate, angst, division, it always led to genocide. The final solution always ended up being the final solution. Which brings us to the point that next year is an election year. And we all have a chance, again, to shape our society into one that can achieve more of these Christian goals. First, can we celebrate and be grateful for that? We're allowed to cast a meaningful secret ballot vote and choose our own leaders. That is rare in the world. We have to say hallelujah for that. I don't think it's any coincidence that democracy in the world lives in the footprint of the church of Jesus Christ. Look at the world and see where the church of Jesus Christ has walked 
and you will find democracy is pooled up in those footprints. Now, Lakeland is weird these days because Democrats and Republicans go to church here together. You may have noticed. That's really weird these days when churches are lining up along political lines. That's far more typical to say, this is a church for Democrats. We don't say that, but what we do is you just make a lot of Donald Trump jokes all the time and support certain causes. Or this church is a church for Republicans. We don't say it just like that, but we make lots of snarky snowflake comments and oppose and support different causes. We haven't done that. And that's unusual, sadly. We haven't done that because we believe that Democrats are nothing and Republicans are nothing. What matters is God's love for us and our obedience to him. And truly, if we spread this gospel of Jesus Christ, where the underprivileged are empowered and the privileged joyfully humble themselves because of their vision of the kingdom, most of these problems we're trying to address will go away which will leave us with all these amazing resources to build an amazing nation. All the tools we have are laying all around us. The mission of the church really is the way for us all to have what we all want. So use your votes. They are right. They are a right. They are a privilege. They are a blessing. But when we come here to this sanctuary, Let us be about a mission that is bigger and even more important. Those things are important, but all those leaders that we have to choose from, that's all short-term solutions. And all of them only offer about half of what the average Christian really wants. So when we come here, let's be about the long game. The one that in the end is the only real hope we have. The only one that has ever actually created these promised changes. And this year, let's agree not to fight amongst ourselves. Insulting one another and arguing and fighting and and needling on social media, posting and reposting and long and clever dissertations. We play into the hands of our enemy when we do that to one another. Now, when I wrote this, I meant our enemy, the spiritual enemy, the devil. But now we've since learned we also have earthly enemies who use social media space to turn us against one another. Some of them are domestic. They are uh, advertising attention engineers who try to make social media into a hot place that keeps buzzing in your pocket, distracting you right now. Just come look, come look, come look at the advertisements. And then we know that some of them are foreign governments who are trying to destabilize our society and turn us against one another. Our Christian values of love and decency and community should have made us immune to that. And our enemies have had three years now to think about what they're going to do to us this time. But let us pull together and it won't work. Thank you to our social media team here at Lakeland that has endeavors each day to make social media a positive place where the values of community and the love of God and the good news of Jesus Christ is proclaimed. In 2020, let's resist our real enemies, and not any of them are sitting here in the room with us, with harmony and love as the church. And let's accept this. We're not going to agree on who's best to lead us in the short run. But that is nothing. Cast the best vote you can. 
and then come back on Sunday and let's focus on our real mission. It's bigger than that. Things you can do to make a real difference in the lives of people that you know right here. Kylie gave us a call this morning to come and do something that will change family trees and deal with so many, touch so many issues that we've touched on already. That's just one opportunity of dozens we have here at Lakeland to share the good news of Jesus Christ in a way that leads to a rich relationship with God and gives us Holy Spirit power. So I have been in my life uh, really, really conservative. Rush Limbaugh twice a day, ditto head. I I had that phase. Um, Some of you lived through my really, really liberal phase. Um, They have all disappointed me. They have all disappointed me. And I always come back to kind of where I am today. The reason why is because in 1993, when I had just become a Christian, um, I was driving through Dallas and a sermon came on the radio and the guy was preaching, is God a Democrat or a Republican? (laughs) I want to listen to that sermon. The words he spoke stamped on my soul. And although I've wandered to the right and wandered to the left, it always brings me kind of back to where I am now. So I went online just to see, and I found, I found a recording of that 25-year-old sermon. Remember why you listen to this, that it's 25 years old, because it sounds like it was written last week. And I have edited it down, or had it edited down a little bit. I'd just like to share that with you in hopes that what was stamped on my soul might get stamped on yours. So this is also preaching in the black tradition. And if you've never experienced that before, you might put on your seatbelt. It's a lot more energy than you get from pasty white guys like me. So, but uh, I will yield the remainder of my time to the man of God. Uh, This is Dr. Tony Evans. We are engaged in a battle today and people are split. And they feel very, very committed to their particular political orientation. But I want to answer the question today, is God a Democrat or a Republican? Now we've already said that God cannot be removed from politics. Because the reason I want to know that is because I want to vote with him. I kind of want to know where God stands so I know where I'm supposed to stand as a child of God. I would think that would be any Christian's concern. That's why I want to call your attention to Joshua chapter 5. Joshua chapter 5. Joshua has crossed the promised land. He is the leader of the nation of Israel. They have now crossed into the promised land and are about to move forward. As they make their way forward, they are moving toward Jericho. Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? Are you voting for us? Are you on our side or are you voting for them? Are you on Jericho's side? I need to know which way you're going, who you're voting for, whose side are you on? The man answers and he says in verse 14, no. Now, I don't see how that answers the question. 
Joshua said, are you on their side or are you on our side? I would have thought the answer would have been, I'm on your side or I'm on their side because that was the question. But all the captain says is, no. Rather, I indeed come as captain of the host of the Lord. The answer came back to Joshua, I'm not on your side, nor am I on their side. I got a whole nother program that is independent of both of your sides. I've got a whole nother program and I'm not going to let you box me in to your program of how you think I ought to vote. How you think I ought to be. I'm not going to let you, the captain says, pull me down to your level. Why? Because I'm captain of somebody else's army. I am captain of the Lord's army of hosts. He's got this whole other thing that's not tied down to your side or their side. I would like to suggest to you today that our God is not the God of Democrats, nor is he the God of Republicans. He says, I am captain of the Lord's army. I did not come to take sides. I come to take over. There's this whole other thing I'm doing. So you say, are you saying it's wrong for me to be a Democrat? Are you saying it's wrong for me to be a Republican? No, I'm saying if you're a Democrat, you got to be a Democrat light. Like crystal light, you know, like Coke light, you know. Or if you're a Republican, you got to be a Republican light. In other words, no group can have your total loyalty because you belong to another order. And see, unless you see that, you will never be fully Christian and your Christianity will always be, see, since there is no kingdom party, I'm working on it, but since right now there is no kingdom party, no party that takes the position that the only way we approach anything is from the divine perspective, since that party does not yet exist. And we have to vote in the parties that are available to us based on the candidates that are in place. Your position is, I'm going to may vote Democratic, kinda. I may vote Republican, kinda. But as soon as you disagree with God, I'm going to disagree with you, even though I voted in your direction, because my commitment is not fully to you. And the problem is we've allowed the politics of men to call for a kind of kingdom commitment that only God has the right to call for. And that is why there is a division in the kingdom of God. Is God a Democrat or Republican? God is the consummate independent. And so should you be. Yes, there is a moral agenda, but there's also a justice agenda. And there can be no discrimination, and there can be no partiality. But yes, we must value life and value God's moral stance. And where there are both, Christians must stand in the divine without giving full allegiance to either. Amen.